Mr. Laris, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor. You may proceed. May it please the court, counsel again for the record, Chris Laris on behalf of appellants. The Minneapolis Sick and Safe Time Ordinance is the second of two efforts by the city of Minneapolis to impose unprecedented municipal regulation over private employers and seeks to expand its municipal authority far beyond the city's territorial borders on employers having only a de minimis connection with the city. Since 1983, the Minnesota legislature has extensively and repeatedly addressed the regulation of employer-provided leave on at least nine separate occasions. And while it's imposed leave requirements on certain employers, it's consistently chosen not to impose those burdens on small employers with fewer than 20 employees. And while the legislature has, re had, has regulated how um, various types of leave may, that are provided may be used, it is, uh, it is not obligated employers to provide those benefits um, with respect to sick and safe time. It is left to employers the decision of whether or not um, sick leave that is provided is to be paid. The Minneapolis Sick and Safe Time Ordinance seeks to undo these legislative choices. And this ordinance, like the one we just discussed, is invalid for, for reasons of conflict and implied preemption, but is also invalid for an additional Council, I want to see if I can get a handle on exactly how broad the reach is of this ordinance. And um, as I understand it, if an employer has an employee who works 80 hours of year, a year in the city in some way, that triggers the statute. And if you do the math, uh, I'm not going to do the math in public. I wouldn't want to embarrass myself. But I, I think the way it works out you, is you can be a delivery person traveling through on 35W94 from the south end of Minneapolis to the north end of Minneapolis. Uh, and um, it's about a half an hour a day, maybe. Uh, am I, is it, does that sound about right in terms of the minimal kind of activity that it tr takes to trigger this ordinance? Um, Justice Anderson, it does. It is a, an 80-hour-a-year um, trigger, and the record-keeping obligations arise whenever an employer believes that there may be an employee who's going to reach that trigger. Um, and but, that, but would they don't even have to stop in Minneapolis. They they can just drive by, <laughs> drive the, through. And, and that's the point that I'm making: is is you deliver something, you you you've got a business in Apple Valley, you drive through the city of Minneapolis and back, spending well, if you're maybe spending more than a half an hour on 35W, but whatever. Yeah, uh, you're. That's all it takes to trigger the ordinance. Am I, is, is, does that sound about right? Well, Your Honor, I believe that the uh, um, I believe that there's uh, by the plain language of the ordinance, we think that's right. The city, recognizing the challenges of defending that position, has implemented rules or has rules on its website that would purport to limit that uh, to avoid situations where someone is only driving through. But it would certainly cover situations where. Um, a delivery driver, for example, who's delivering pizzas in Apple Valley one, one day makes a delivery uh, in the, into Minneapolis the next by as little as an hour and a half a week. And the benefits that would accrue from that, as Judge Dickstein found, are basically that it would take under the HET regime four years in order to accrue even a, if someone was working at that trigger level, even a a single day of sick leave. Nevertheless... Council, my, my concern with, with Judge Dickstein's argument and yours here, though, is that it seems to impose almost a, a substantive due process uh, argument. Uh, Judge Dickstein talked about there's not a sufficient nexus, and that seems to go to Justice Anderson's point, and um, it needs to be narrowly crafted and that type of language. Well, that's a substantive due process analysis. And I just question whether that's appropriate here, since it doesn't appear that that's a claim you've made. Uh, and secondly, I've, it, it is concerning, and I'd like you to address this point as well. When you look at our subsequent cases um, in Orr and Simonson, 
They don't pick up any of that language, the, the narrowly crafted, sufficient nexus. That analysis isn't there. And, and then lastly, if you look in Nelson itself, there was no threshold, if you will, uh, in Nelson. If you sold any milk within the city, you were, you were bound by that. So I guess I'm questioning whether we, it's, whether the focus is appropriately, again, almost a strict scrutiny, substantive due process approach, or more of a sort of rational basis approach, which is what seems to me Nelson was about. Could you address those issues? I will, Justice Hudson. So first of all, with respect to the issue of what type of claim this is, um, the Court of Appeals below recognized that, uh, that uh, Judge Dickstein did not, uh, was not addressing a substantive due process issue, and we've never claimed that this is a substantive due process violation. <laughs> what you don't, you have to acknowledge though, when you use terms like narrowly crafted and sufficient nexus, that comes right out of, he doesn't use the word substantive due process, you're right. But that is the focus of those, uh, of that analysis. We believe, so certainly we agree that, um, that those are, con that concepts of nexus and concepts of something being narrowly crafted do arise where there is a, a due process challenge. But they also are appropriate to this different type of challenge under this that deals with the extraterritorial impact of a city's ordinance. Um, there is limited decisional authority applying this different standard. But from the, the state constitution to, enacting, to enabling statutes, there's a clear concept that a city's ability to um, govern is limited to its borders. And, and, with, and so this court does need to apply a review of whether or not the city has exceeded that power. Here well, we have what, a situation. What would he do with the language? Nelson itself talks about, um, upon the evidence, we could not say that this provision of the ordinance is oppressive or that it, uh, or that it has not a reasonable tendency to prevent the sale of unwholesome milk. So they come at it from a reasonable tendency. And I'm wondering here, is there not a reasonable tendency for these provisions uh, regarding sick and safe leave to have a reasonable tendency to protect workers' health and to protect the, the city from people coming in sick and that type of thing. Well, um, Justice Hudson, there were several challenges that were raised to the licensing scheme that was at issue in State v. Nelson. One of those challenges was the question of whether um, the statute, whether the ordinance was unreasonable, whether that licensing scheme was unreasonable. And I believe that's the third of the three challenges that was addressed, and they're specifically enumerated in the statute. A, the second of those challenges dealt with what specifically with whether or not the licensing scheme had an impermissible extraterritorial effect. And it's in connection with that challenge that this court recognized that based on the record evidence and its own a priori analysis, it was necessary court's own words, it was necessary to have an inspection that took place outside of the state, outside of the city's boundaries, in order to meet the city's goal. And because it was necessary, the city, this, this court made the observation that, it that the uh, licensing scheme passed muster and went no farther than was reasonably necessary in order to affect a city purpose. And that standard that, go, that the statute, go, the ordinance goes no farther than is reasonably necessary to affect the purpose is what governed ultimately the outcome of that particular challenge on the issue of extraterritoriality. Here we have a very different set of circumstances. Um, not only is there no evidence that it is necessary to meet the city's stated goals of ensuring the health of its citizens to have uh, paid sick leave for anybody who works as little as 80 hours a week. Well, but Council, let's take Justice Anderson's hypothetical of a delivery person who is going through Minneapolis, presumably delivering products and goods and so on. Um, does the city have a legitimate interest 
in, in trying to make sure that that delivery person isn't sick when he or she is delivering the goods and products within the city of Minneapolis. The city has a legitimate interest. And we've not contested that the city has a legitimate does, interest. Doesn't the accrual of sick leave uh, further that legitimate interest for the delivery person? The, at, at this level, at the, at the level in which the city has chosen to impose burdens, no. In a, city, in a situation in which um, undisputedly it would take four years to acquire a, 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 a single day of sick leave. So your point is, is there's not a close enough connection because it apparently doesn't go far enough for the people like the delivery person. Is that your point? Well, I think that what Judge Dickstein found and what um, Judge Connolly found was that there was a lack of any rational well, connection Judge, at Judge, all. Judge Connolly didn't find anything. He, I, he concurred. In fact, he concurred on extraterritoriality, didn't he? He did, Your Honor. Okay. He did, um, despite what he identified as his concerns regarding the lack of any record support at all for a rational basis of connecting the threshold set by the city with the goal identified by the city. Ask about the extraterritoriality doctrine, um, and I'll have a conversation with opposing counsel, your opposing counsel on this question as well. But um, you know, your position seems to be that whatever the extraterritorial extraterritoriality doctrine means in this context, eighty hours um, is a violation of that doctrine. Uh, and I would point, and I think you point to uh, Orr, which of course was decided after Nelson. And Orr says it's confined; the city is confined to its own limits um, and its own concerns. But where would you draw the line, and how would you draw the line, in order to have a viable extraterritorial doctrine? In other words, um, in how do you go about applying that doctrine? in perhaps a case that might be more difficult from your perspective? Well, Justice Anderson, we believe that the, the line should be drawn as it was drawn in the State v. Nelson case, which is a standard that requires that where a, stat, where a city is acting beyond its municipal borders, that um, it should go, it must go no farther than is reasonably necessary. And that standard about what's reasonable is something that courts are well equipped to address based upon the record evidence that's in front of them in a given case. So rather than having to reach so out. So for example, just to, just to sort of um, put some flesh on this, um, I think the city's got some problems with this 80-hour requirement, at least I think they do. But you could have the reverse situation. You could have a, an employer who employs several hundred employees headquarters of the business is located outside of the city limits. Um, I think we'd all probably agree that they could be subject under Nelson, that the doctrine's probably not going to save the employer in that context. Where do you draw the line between those examples and how do you do that? Well, I think the court would need to, uh, the court would undertake a determination of reasonableness. And it would look at what the goal is behind the city municipal action. And it would look at what the, um, the relationship is between the extraterritorial burdens and that goal. And what we have here, and so where, for example, you had Nelson, in which the court was making uh, an observation that based on the evidence of record, it was necessary to meet a legitimate municipal goal to do inspections outside of the city, that test of going no farther than is reasonably necessary is easily met. But counsel, is, is part of the test also, I agree with you, that, that should be part of the test, but I'm wondering if also a part of that test is the language that Nelson uses, which is that the only subject upon which the ordinance operates is the sale of milk within the city. So you look at what is the activity that the city is trying to regulate and is that activity happening within the city and that's why or was different is because part of what they were trying to regulate was the storage of explosives outside the city of Duluth they said if you're going to regulate the ones that are stored in Duluth you're fine but if you're outside Duluth you're not fine and here particularly after the 2018 amendments that the city adopted it seems to me you're still fo you're focused on when employees work within the city 
Um, and so that's a piece of it. And I'm not sure you get how much weight you put, and maybe this is part of Justice Anderson's question, how much weight you put on how effective that is. Particularly when you look again yes. at Orr and Simonson, they don't talk about that at all. So I, I think there needs to be an analysis about the relationship between the extraterritorial burden and what the, what the goal is within the city. Here, it, so we talked already about Nelson. Nelson was very high because it was necessary to achieve a legitimate purpose. Here, we have a situation where the city has chosen, the city identifies a goal of protecting the health of citizens within its borders. And it has chosen a path to that goal that's fair, that I think by any measure is fairly attenuated in dealing not with specific regulation of, of individuals who are sick or even employers who have sick employees, but the providing of, be of benefits. And then it goes farther and is even more attenuated in that it sets a very low threshold for people who have only, as Judge Dixon found, a de minimis contact with the city. And so the, that, that, that balancing that view of the of the connect of the burden with the connection to a legitimate purpose is exactly what is required under a test as set forth in Counselor, Nelson. Are your clients attacking the extraterritoriality of the ordinance on its face or as applied? We are attacking it on its face. On its face, this ordinance is there would an as applied challenge also here or is it I'm just sorry. on its face? It is a facial challenge. On its face, this ordinance imposes substantial burdens on employers who are outside of the city of Minneapolis. And it does so based upon a connection um, that is uh, having employees who perform, who, who have de minimis contact with the city, an hour and a half a week. Or so, the, so the objection is not, so you, you can conceive and you would concede that there's a case where if you have a higher hour requirement, uh, so you're not contesting that the use of the benefits itself is problematic. Your argument is that you don't get enough benefits to actually serve the city's purpose here. So you would concede that there's a point like if you did, if it was 20 hours a week in the city, where you'd accrue enough sick time that it would actually give you time to take that amount off, you'd concede that that would be okay. Or well, I don't know if 20 is exactly the number, but there's some number where it would actually be okay to have a system like this of requiring sick leave benefits. I'll certainly admit that it's conceivable it could be. What would matter... So your argument is not that the benefits system itself is problematic as an extraterritorial matter. It's that the way this particular one, they just set too slow a threshold because if you have to wait four years to use sick leave, it's not going to serve the city's purpose and then imposes this burden on employers. Is that kind of the gist of it? Well, Your Honor, I think that... The Certainly, our point is it goes much farther than is necessary to meet this goal. It's an attenuated benefit, and it and and it has triggered so substantial burden. So, is it the benefit, or is it the fact that the benefit is, in some sense, too low because it doesn't serve the purpose because people won't be able to take advantage of it? I think those are two separate things, and I. I, I, I concede that they are two separate things. The city, um, during the course of this case. The city amended the ordinance to provide uh, to a more restrictive view of when those benefits could be used. And as, as they relate, or as it sits now, those benefits can be used only for work that is performed within the city. So, Council, following up on my as-applied or uh, on its face question, um, if the ordinance does go too far in certain respects, then what's the remedy? Is it to invalidate the entire ordinance? <clears throat> Or if there, <clears throat> there are parts of the ordinance that are valid and not extraterritorial, would we redline them? Well, with respect, <clears throat> so again, recognizing that we contend that there are issues of implied and conflict preemption that would invalidate yeah, it I, on I'm its talking, whole. I'm talking simply about extraterritoriality. Understood, Justice Lillehub. It would be our view that um, that was the exact issue that was addressed by Judge Dickstein, and it was appropriate in that instance for him to enjoin the application uh, the extraterritorial ac application of this ordinance. And so the way in which he did that was to um, restrict its application to employers who are not resident in the city. And that, and therefore, you weren't any, you are now dealing with the city's own regulation of people within its Okay, borders. you've got a company that's headquartered in Apple Valley, just across the street from Justice Anderson, but all its operations except 
its executive are, are in Minneapolis. It's got 500 workers at a plant in Minneapolis. Is that an extraterritorial application of the sick leave policy? I, I think under that construction, by, by well-recognized views of what residency is, which is actually an, an independent legal concept that has vowed that the domicile residents of that company might well be in the city of Minneapolis. But let's assume it's not. The, the headquarters very clear. The nerve center is in Apple Valley, but they're making this stuff in Minneapolis with hundreds of workers. Do you think that's an extraterritorial application of the ordinance? If, if the ordinance is, a, is applicable to employees who are not resident, who neither live nor work in the city, or who have only an 80-hour threshold, then it would be extraterritorial. If it is focused on regulating the activities of the 100 employees, as Your Honor says, who are working every day in the city, then perhaps not. So it sounds like your answer is it depends. It's a reasonableness test. That's exactly so it's, what... It's not the ordinance is not invalid in all of its applications. You're saying it's invalid in some. I'm saying as it is written, the ordinance goes farther than is reasonably necessary to reach its goals. Council, following up on that, it, and I guess this is part of Justice Anderson's question as well, um, where's the line? What, what would have been a permissible... Uh, threshold in, in, in your view, and how do we articulate a test going forward? Is It, it, it can't be enough to say it depends, which no, is kind of where you, you come out. Well, with all due respect, I think there are numerous instances in which the test is one of, of reasonableness. And here the test would be, is, does the ordinance go farther than is reasonably necessary? What don't, could have been in counsel, a... Counsel, don't we get a little bit into the, the broad right that municipalities have to, to self-regulate? Um, I mean, maybe it's, maybe we should have started there. That seems to me to be to be the, the threshold here, the, the premise that cities have a broad right uh, to regulate within their within their borders, and that may be why in since 1896 we have three three cases that deal with extraterritoriality, with the most recent being 87. And I suspect that that's in part due to the fact that we give we should as courts give considerable deference. It's to what the cities have decided to do. It may not be the most effective thing they could have done, and we might have thought of better ways to do it. But given that, that basic threshold, that, it, that it's up to cities to regulate, um, what, what do we do with all of that? Well, just Hudson, I believe that the lack of, of um, decisional authority on the issue of extraterritoriality is due in large part by the fact that the city's uh, regulatory ordinances that are at issue in these two cases go far beyond what has ever been done by cities in similar context. Um, ultimately, your honor is absolutely right. The city does have broad powers. It cites all kinds of authority for that proposition. But those powers and the jurisdiction of the city are confined to its own limits to its geographic limits. And so if it, wanted to, if it wanted to impose burdens upon employers who are within its municipal boundaries, it has a much broader spectrum of ability to do that. But in this case, the city of Minneapolis chose to go much farther. And it basically, again, trying to use its own policy decisions and for those, substituting for those of the legislature wanted to affect a much broader societal impact and basically say that anybody who touched the city for an hour and a half a week was going to have an employer who now was going to be subject to record-keeping and tracking burdens Council, that never existed before. Sorry to interrupt you, but it seems like in Nelson, the, the court sort of thought about this burden that, that might be placed upon a dairy in that case for just minimal sales of milk and said, well, it's a voluntary thing. If you have an employer who's going to have a, you know, employee in the city of Minneapolis very sporadically, well, the employer, doesn't the employer have the choice? Just don't have that person work in Minneapolis. When we're talking about, you know, because the amicus 
uh, gives an example of janitors where a company has, I think it was a thousand janitors who, and the company's located outside of Minneapolis, but those janitors are working every day in, our, in Minneapolis buildings. Um, you know, the ordinance totally makes sense for that situation. You're talking about, you know, the very uh, 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 opposite thing where, you know, it touches somebody who only rarely comes into Minneapolis, but isn't, isn't, isn't there a, a solution there? Just don't have that person come into Minneapolis for an hour a week or whatever it is. Well, Your Honor, I believe that the extremely broad scope of this regulation places that as an, un, as an entirely unreasonable approach. With respect to the janitors and the point that there might be people who are working all the time in the city of Minneapolis, it's my understanding that there was an adjudication, and the, the amici refer to this, in which those janitors, the employer was found to be resident in the city. Um, with respect to, um, unlike Nelson, unlike Simonson, this is a situation in which, rather than a licensing scheme focused on a very narrow segment of the economy, the city, which reflects the biggest regional economy in this state, is um, imposing these burdens upon the full spectrum of any employer and for any purpose, regardless of where located, um, that will bear these burdens based on only that very de minimis contact with the city. And that fails, our, that fails the test that was set forth in, um, in State v. Nelson. And I see my time's up. Yes, thank you, Council. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Ms. McLaren. May it please the court. My name is Sarah McLaren, Assistant City Attorney, appearing on behalf of City of Minneapolis. Appellant, uh, appellants are asking this court for the first time to limit a municipality's ability to police conduct occurring within its borders, perceived on, excuse me, based on perceived extraterritorial impact of those um, regulations. Uh, there's over 100 years of precedent affirming the city's re right to regulate conduct occurring within its borders. And here you have the city not only acting as a home rule charter city, uh, but also as a community health board uh, endeavoring Council, to... Though, what's your response, though, to the argument that um, this ordinance is just entirely too broad? I mean, the, does the breadth and the scope of it play any role? Uh, particularly in light of the fact that, as uh, Mr. Laris points out, there is certainly language in Nelson that talks about um, it, that it was necessary, quote-unquote, necessary to inspect the herd. So is your position that the breadth and the scope plays no role at all? Your Honor, I think, I think what you have to look at, um, and, and the breadth and the scope could be part of this inquiry, but what you need to look at is the language in Nelson that talks about um, is there a reasonable tendency of this ordinance to promote uh, the benefits being sought by the city. In Nelson, you had the desire to prevent the sale of unwholesome milk. Uh, and so if you look at the breadth of the ordinance in Nelson, it goes far beyond what we have here. In Nelson, there was no threshold. There was uh, just a drop of milk, and you're subject to the ordinance. And then I know that... Uh, but, but, I mean, come on now. In, in, in 18, whatever it was, 1880s, I mean, people, they weren't selling drops of milk. They were selling bottles of milk. And you, I mean, I, mean, I think you're overstating it a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, understood, Your Honor. In addition, the other point I do want to take away from Nelson, because I feel that it has been um, somewhat glossed over uh, by appellants, is that Nelson did not only subject people choosing to sell milk in the city of Minneapolis to its, uh, to its regulations. It, those were the sellers. Even if I wanted to sell milk in the city of Minneapolis and I got my milk from uh, a dairy, wasn't my dairy, I bought milk from them, sold it in Minneapolis. My supplier was then subject to the ordinance. So if you look at the language of the ordinance in Nelson, not only were sellers um, subject to it, but also suppliers. So you could have dairies 
that had no idea they were subject to this ordinance, having people from the city of Minneapolis show up to examine their livestock, administer this tuberculin test, and actually remove animals from the herd should there be um, uh, found to have one that was contaminated. Wouldn't a better analogy to Nelson here be, I mean, if the purpose that you're relying on is to protect people from Minneapolis from getting sick because someone is also is sick and is showing up in Minneapolis, wouldn't the more direct analogy just be if you're sick, you can't come and work in Minneapolis? I mean, isn't, don't, isn't there something to their argument that you're using a tool, which is kind of creating benefits, justifying it by keeping people in Minneapolis healthy? But there does seem to be a bigger disconnect between the tool that you're using, particularly at the 80-hour 80 80 limit, and the results you want to get. Seems like there was a very direct result in, in Nelson, and here it seems more attenuated. Well, I think perhaps the directness of the tool used in Nelson appears very obvious today um, in light of modern medicine. But if you look at the language of Nelson, that actually was not uh, commonly accepted at that time. There was evidence in the record that this test that they were administering the cows was uncertain in its results and actually could be harmful to the health of the animals. Um, they actually put the term germ disease in quotes, which um, tends to give an idea of what level of scientific knowledge um, they had at that time. So I don't think just because you could think of a different way to accomplish this end, that that itself is a reason to call the means chosen by the legislatively, excuse me, legislatively elected body here into question. That gets into a policy decision made by the elected leadership of the city, and they will be accountable to the voters for that. Well, except the people they're affecting are not the voters in this case. That's part of the point of extraterritoriality, right? Well, the other um, body that they are accountable to is the um, state legislature could also put limits on the city's ability to do this. So there, there are different levels of accountability. But if you look at what happened in Nelson, the extraterritorial effects were far greater in many ways than those here. If you look at the actual record of harm to employers, there's almost none here. We have a lot of... Um, hypothesized harms, I would say, but we did discovery in this well, case. I think we there's a lot of hypothesizing going on both sides here, but let me just ask this. Is there any argument from the city here that the Minnesota Constitution or state statute authorizes the city council in Minneapolis to regulate employers who are not located, or who are located outside the city's borders? Is there an argument here that there's something in the Constitution that permits this? or state statute that permits it? Yes, Your Honor. I would say that because as a home rule charter city um, and as a community health board, both the Constitution and state statutes permit the city to regulate within its borders um, to the extent as if it were the state legislature. So now I understand Your Honor's point that you're saying, but no, you're not regulating people within the borders. You're regulating these employers. But these are employers who are purposefully sending their employees into the city of Minneapolis. Let me just try it again. I mean, let's just for forget about, about whether or not they're sending people into Minneapolis. I mean, just straight up, let's just assume that this is extraterritorial, that you're regulating. I'm, I'm just asking you to assume that. I understand you don't agree with it, but but there is a principle in law that, that municipalities can regulate extraterritorially if the Constitution permits them. The Constitution in some states does, and there's an argument in some places that there's a state statute that permits municipalities to regulate, regulate extraterritorially. What I'm trying to get at is you're not making that argument here. The city's arguing we're not regulating extraterritorially. We're regulating inside the city of Minneapolis. That is correct, Your Honor. And it is my understanding, and I think the parties agree, that no, there is no special um, grant of power to regulate purely extraterritoriality. Of course, the city does not believe that's the case here. Well, your, your an the question and answer that just, that just happened illustrates my concern with the scope of the injunction that the district court uh, imposed. The district court keyed this on the residency of the employer. Now, I t you tell me if I'm wrong. I'll ask Mr. Laris the same. Would that mean that, for example, because Wells Fargo is a Delaware corporation or wherever they're headquartered, that they're not a resident of the city of Minneapolis? And so you can't regulate Wells sick leave for Wells Fargo employees? 
Your Honor, frankly, I don't, I think that's one of the problems with the injunction that the district court entered is the scope was very unclear. Um, the term employer residence has, has different, I mean, are we talking about for tax purposes, for personal jurisdiction purposes? It was unclear how that term was to be applied. And so um, the city attempting, had, had truly no choice but to apply a very conservative interpretation of that injunction and, and uh, hone in, or excuse me, to scale back its enforcement efforts in an effort not to run afoul is of it. Is that the injunction, the, the, the injunction imposed by the district court, is that the injunction, the relief that was requested by the plaintiffs in this case? No, Your Honor. I don't believe the plaintiffs ever made a request for a specific injunction because they were relying on their conflict and field preemption claims to just get the statute struck down in its entirety. So to my recollection, there was never a specific scope of a more narrow injunction um, that uh, was made by the appellants here. Um, while we're talking about scope, one thing I would like to add into the discussion that occurred earlier about the janitors is, um, as was discussed, the janitors um, we had a situation where uh, people who spent their entire working life, essentially, in this job, working in Minneapolis, were being denied benefits under the ordinance by their employer. And that was in part due to um, the uncertain scope of this injunction. Appellants are correct that an arbitrator um, did uh, rule that those employers were still subject to the ordinance. However, um, my understanding is that at least one of the employers has appealed that arbitration um, ruling and that the briefing is currently ongoing before the Eighth Circuit Moving on from that. janitors back to Justice Anderson's delivery person hypothetical, let's say you actually have somebody whose daily work causes them to spend a half hour a day, sometimes more probably, on Interstate 94, Interstate 35, jammed in traffic never get out of the delivery truck, but it just happens day after day. Um, do the, uh, does the Minneapolis ordinance apply to give that person sick leave? No, it does not, Your Honor. Why not? Uh, because in the uh, governing rules and FAQs that were put forth to employers were the Minneapolis's Civil Rights Department's own interpretation of its ordinance. Um, that example was specifically cited as an instance in which the ordinance would not apply. And we did include the rules and FAQs in respondent's addendum. It begins at page 78 of the addendum. Council, I want to just see if I can get the bookends from the city's position. So this ordinance applies to people who work less than 1% of all, if you calculate all the hours available in a year, 80 hours is less than 1%. And I assume this would apply to an employer no matter where they're based, internationally, in New Zealand. Is there any limit to what the city of Minneapolis can regulate? If they can regulate less than 1% of the hours available, I mean, what is the bookend here? Yes, Your Honor. Um, I would say that that really gets to a heart of the tension in this case in that there are limits on what the city can do. Um, they just, what the appellants are trying to do is import um, a number of limits on what the city can do into the extraterritoriality doctrine, which it's really not designed to do. So, um, for example, I'm going to trust Your Honor on the math on the 1%. Um, I'm not doubting that. I just also don't want to do math here. Um, there are other checks on municipal authority. The city can only legislate on areas of municipal concern, which that's not um, in dispute here, that this is an area of municipal concern. Um, the city also has to meet the rational basis test in its legislation. And further to your honor's example of perhaps an international employer, we're also subject to a personal jurisdiction challenge. So I think that there are still limits on what a, city, what a city can do in terms of enforcement, but we don't need to um, hear some of these extreme examples and concerns from appellants and then start to re, um, add in more limitations to the extraterritoriality doctrine. Well, counsel, I'm starting to wonder if this, some of these extraterritoriality hypos are even ripe. I mean, if the city hasn't attempted to enforce the, uh, the ordinance 
in an extraterritorial fashion, why, why should we be considering whether there's an injunction that is, is appropriate? I, I fully agree with Your Honor on that. My understanding, I'm, I'm glad to hear counsel clarify that this is a facial challenge. That's something that's been somewhat unclear in this litigation. And I thought a facial challenge, you had to prove something was um, illegal in all its applications, which clearly is not the case here. But regardless of that, um, you're absolutely right in that we do not have before this court a record of one of these for lack of a better term, extreme enforcement examples. Instead, you have the appellants here who, um, Graco, one of the lead plaintiffs, they met the, um, they have factories in, or at least one facility in Minneapolis, and they complied with the ordinance without having to add any additional time off. They just converted their existing uh, paid time off policy to include the purposes encompassed by the ordinance. So we do not have a rec uh, record of um, some of the parade of horribles being um, spoken about by appellants here. But isn't there, a, isn't there a burden even before litigation would start of having to keep the records? I mean, it's, it doesn't, it seems like this, the ordinance imposes, the potential that someone could be here for 80 hours imposes burdens on people before they even start to go down this path. Well, um, Your Honor, there is no obligation to keep records if you are not attempting to, if you're simply giving your employees the benefit, um, as Graco did, of the well, paid time off. Obviously, the argument is for people not giving the benefit or we wouldn't be here, right? I mean, I, I don't, oh. if, if, so Graco is, but they're making a, a challenge to the ordinance in general. Or is your argument that Graco doesn't have standing here to make that argument? No, Your Honor, okay. I'm, we are not challenging standing. So, so anyway, that, that I guess maybe there is no answer to that. But this idea, say, say a, a law firm uh, from Dallas has, uh, you know, which I don't know what Texas law is. I don't know what they require for sick leave benefits. But say a law firm has uh, litigation here for two weeks and they send paralegals up to work on it, clearly working 80 hours during that period of time. So this ordinance would apply to them and they'd have to keep records for that employee for that time. Yes, Your Honor. I do think that um, the amicus brief put in by the Commissioner of Department of Labor and Industry did have good examples of the records already required to be kept by employers and the value that those records provide. So again, I don't see, uh, there's, there's no record that this is going to be some sort of additional um, uh, large burden on employers to keep what limited additional records would be required by this ordinance beyond those they're already legally keeping. Council, can Council. you just turn to the to the conflict issue for a minute? Um, and there's an argument made in the briefing that there's a conflict here because state law doesn't doesn't require small employers to do anything, um, but the city of Minneapolis ordinance does. Can you address that potential conflict? Yes, Your Honor. Um, so, essentially, that um, is part of appellant's conflict claim. claim excuse me, conflict claim. Um, which is that if state law is silent on something, or here they are not explicitly stating uh, that employers must provide um, sick leave benefits, that, that the city is prohibited from legislating on that topic. Um, and when you apply the conflict test in our jurisprudence, uh, this is not an example where the ordinance is forbidding what the statute expressly permits because they are relying on implicit permission given by the statute for these employers to not provide any benefits. Therefore, there is no conflict in this situation. Do you agree that the state statute does not impose requirements of any sort on small employers? I agree with that, Your Honor. However, I, I do not think that that it, um, qualifies as express permission. Um, I can turn briefly to field preemption unless the court has an additional questions on the other um, topics Maybe we've covered. Maybe if I can, I mean, I'm swapping back and forth now, but back to the extraterritorial argument. Maybe, if could you just articulate how it is that this ordinance serves 
the articulated interests of the city of Minneapolis in protecting its residents from getting sick? Yes, Your Honor. Um, the city of Minneapolis uh, made extensive findings um, and has extensive research um, supporting the idea, the connection between access to paid sick leave and public health. There is a high percentage of people in service industry jobs who do not currently have access to paid sick leave. And these are people who are um, in contact with the public. Um, in, okay. Okay. <laughs> in contact with the public and um, can easily, disease can be spread in those situations if people do not have the ability to stay home while sick and still be able to pay their bills, get a paycheck, et cetera. So somehow the idea is that if you... If you're in the city of Minneapolis for less than 1% of the hours available in the year and you come in in that period of time and you're sick, that that somehow is going to make a person who lives in Minneapolis sick. And you're trying to, the city's trying to protect its residents then from exposure. Yes, Your Honor, and that's also um, why our rules exempt a situation such as someone stuck in traffic. They're not leaving their vehicle um, so that they're not, they're, there's no public health issue there. They're not subject to but, the ordinance. But doesn't this get to exactly the, the issue that they're raising is that the tool of sick leave for someone working 80 hours a year isn't going to provide any protection to anybody for four years? I mean, so isn't there something to be made of that argument that this tool actually doesn't accomplish the purpose you're trying to accomplish as you just articulated it? I think these arguments all about kind of goodness of fit between problem and remedy, they really go outside the scope of what was happening or go well beyond the scope of what was happening in Nelson. There the court was not looking for a perfect fit and that's never been required for an extraterritoriality analysis. All we need to meet here is the rational basis test, which we have met. Also, I do find their argument about us not giving enough of a benefit to someone here 1% of the time, curious, because then presumably if we ordered someone to get a day of sick leave for every hour, every day in which they worked one hour in the city of Minneapolis, then we would meet that test. That would be I, even more I, burdensome for employers. I, so I think you're right, but... I mean, that's not what we're talking about here. And there may be reasons the city does not want to impose a burden of one day of sick leave for every hour they work. Exactly, Your Honor. But I guess it just falls back into my larger point of the court's inquiry is not, is this the best fit the city could have found? Is this the only fit the city could have found? But does this have a reasonable tendency to accomplish um, the public purpose set forth in the statute? And here there is no dispute of the between the connection between access to paid sick leave and public health. I will now turn to uh, implied preemption, um, but of course I'm happy to answer any other questions the court may have um, on the other topics as well. With regards to implied or field preemption, uh, the key inquiry here is legislative intent. And here there's no evidence of any legislative intent to preempt local regulation by the state legislature. If you look at the state statutes providing employees with paid leave, uh, they uniformly demonstrate the legislature's intention to protect, not restrict, employee rights. Counsel, do you think the Daly case from 1969 is a field preemption case or a conflict preemption case, or is it both? Because it's after Mangold. I, I think it's both, Your Honor, and I think it, it added good language into um, uh, the case law about the need for the state legislature to make clear when it did intend to preempt cities from acting on these issues that can affect them at a peculiarly local level. So I, I don't think it's limited to one or the other, Your Honor. Well, your, your opposing counsel deals with this in a footnote, deals with Daly in a footnote, and says... Daly is 50 years old and has never been cited by the court. What do you make of that? Well, Your Honor, I, I, I don't know that there is an expiration date on um, case law. I think if you look to the underlying principles underlying Daly, they remain true today. You have um, 
different municipalities have different issues. That is why they are empowered by the state legislature to govern within their borders on issues of municipal concern. That is what the city has done here, and I think daily is good law um, setting forth that proposition. Council, um, the sick leave statute and some of the other leave statutes cited by uh, the chambers acknowledge that employers can give greater amounts of um, leave benefits, but they don't say anything specifically about cities or municipalities. Do you, what's the import of that, do you think? Your Honor, I think the import is uh uh, twofold. One, it's more evidence that the legislature's intention here is to protect employee rights. They want to make clear to the employers, you are not prohibited from doing more. Now, you know, in a perfect world, would I love for there to be a sentence saying the same thing for municipalities? Yes. But the fact that the legislation is silent on that issue does not give rise to any evidence that the legislature intended to restrict a municipality's ability to act, to um, add further protections for employees um, based on local concerns occurring within that municipality. So in the, our, the case law, there are a number of examples um, where I guess now I'm, I'm jumping a little into conflict as well, but there's a number of examples in both the conflict and field preemption area where if you look at legislative silence is not sufficient to find either a conflict or field preemption. And um, here the statutes are uniformly in favor of employee rights and there's no basis to conclude the legislature intended to restrict a municipality's ability to act in these areas. So in conclusion, for all the foregoing reasons, um, the city respectfully requests that the Court of Appeals be affirmed and that judgment be entered in the city's favor in all respects. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Laris, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Your Honors, I'd like to, uh, to start with Justice Lillehog's inquiry about ripeness. This ordinance is, imposes upon employers located anywhere an obligation to maintain records if there is a chance that they have an employee who will meet this de minimis threshold. Counsel, I, I take your point on that. I hadn't focused on the record keeping requirement. I think it does require the keeping of records. But I have a little different question for you. Um, your, your client's position is that the injunction should be reinstated, correct? At the very least, At the very yes. least. I am really puzzled by this injunction because it is keyed completely on the resonance of the employer. It doesn't have anything to do with where the employees are. I mean, you could have, you could have Wells Fargo headquartered in Delaware, and it's got thousands of employees in the city of Minneapolis. Why does this injunction make any sense whatsoever keyed off on the residence of the employer? Well, Your Honor, it makes sense because it's with respect to the record-keeping obligations, it's focusing on employers who are within the boundaries of the city, which is the, the scope. So the city can ever pass an ordinance that causes an, uh, an employer resident in another state to have to keep records? No, Your Honor, that's not what we're saying, but that ordinance that would impose such burdens can go no farther than is reasonably necessary. That gets us back to an operative test. Here, interestingly, the city raised these arguments in front of you, Judge Dickstein. You, you could have an employer who's in Switzerland running a big operation in the city of Minneapolis, and maybe it keeps all its records about Minneapolis and Minneapolis, but still, because it's resident in Switzerland, it's not covered by the, it's, it is uh, covered by the injunction. Why, why does that make any sense whatsoever? Well, Your Honor, I'm not, I, I don't actually believe that that would necessarily be the outcome based on a determination of residency. I don't believe that, that the law, which and there are various applications for the word residency, necessarily requires that there be only okay, one. Okay, the district court's injunction talked about resident of the, residence of the employer. Yes. Did it define residence? Did he define residence? Did the injunction define residence? The injunction did not define residence. And one of the points... Give me your client's definition then of residence. Um, 
we would contend that residence should be defined as a domicile, and that's with respect to a corporate entity. And that's a concept that is applied across a broad spectrum of legal applications based upon the particular facts of that case. But that would be what we would think would be an appropriate one. Okay, one of the so points like, I'd, would Wells Fargo be a domiciled in the city of Minneapolis? I, I don't know enough about Wells Fargo to know. But what I do know is this, Your Honor, that it is possible, as I understand the, the law around corporate domicile, it's possible for a corporation to have more than one domicile. And so there's nothing that would, in, in your instance, about a situation where there is a, a corporate headquarters in Switzerland with hundreds of employees working in a facility with the, maintained by an employer within the city's boundaries. There's nothing about the, the judges, Judge Dickstein's um, injunction that would preclude application there. In, one of the points that I would like to to make clear on this is that the city, while it now claims that, boy, this isn't very clear, the city chose not to either address Judge Dickstein seeking greater clarity, nor to appeal the, or, the, the injunction on the grounds that it failed to provide sufficient clarity. The city has waived any argument that this injunction was somehow improper. What Judge Dickstein was doing was dealing with a situation with an ordinance that on its face had clear extraterritorial impact, and he drew boundaries. And if, there, if the city took issue with those boundaries, it was free to take them up with Judge Dickstein, or it was free to take them up with the Court of Appeals. It made the choice not to do so. And so while I think it's entirely unfair for the city now to make criticism about um, how Judge Dickstein drew those boundaries. Um, the city recognize the city here is applying uh, its its policymaking decisions beyond the scope of its voters it's choosing to impose immediate and substantial Council, record keeping let me make sure i understand your previous argument is it your argument that if if this court determines that there are some applications of the ordinance that are extraterritorial that we then have to reinstate the injunction in the same form that the district court entered? I'm loath to tell this court the exact limits of what well, it might make, do. You're what making I would... a forfeiture argument, so I need to understand yes. what your client's position yeah, is. Yeah, my, my client's position, Your Honor, is that the city has waived any claim that the ordinance is somehow improperly crafted. And so that the most appropriate remedy the injunction, would be... The injunction. I'm sorry, the injunction. And so the most appropriate remedy, if the court does not strike the ordinance in its entirety is to reinstate that injunction. If the court made a different choice and decided that, that it was concerned about the lack of clarity, the, the appropriate, uh, appropriate result would be to remand that for further proceedings before Judge Dixty. Um, in this case, the city takes the position that if it identifies some proper municipal goal, the health of its own citizens, it's, it is untethered in its ability to obligate um, citizens outside of its geographic boundaries by any concept of extraterritoriality. Sure, it refers to the exact issues about procedural due process, but this is not a procedural due process challenge. This, this court has for more than 100 years recognized a concept, a legal prohibition against a city imposing its judgments outside of extraterritorial borders. And that provides a valid basis upon which to, to limit the, the city's powers. That's what we're seeking here. Interestingly, the, the city focuses on reasonable tendency. And the city would have this court believe that, the, that its jurisprudence provides that when addressing extraterritoriality, excuse me, extraterritoriality, that the relevant test is reasonable tendency. It's absolutely not the case. Again, Nelson dealt with multiple challenges. And the reference to reasonable tendency came in connection in, in challenge number two, came in connection with a separate challenge that the ordinance was oppressive and unreasonable, an entirely separate basis upon which the, the appellant there challenged the ordinance. With respect to extraterritoriality, 
this court focused on the test that it go no farther than was reasonably necessary. The burdens imposed by that the licensing scheme in Nelson were narrowly focused on particular a particular segment of businesses that chose to apply for a license. And as part of the condition for that license had to invite inspectors on to inspect a herd. There was no showing up. There was no risk that you know, folks were just going to show up. There had to be an express invitation. That was a provision. The, another point that distinguishes um, the extraterritorial impact of Nelson was that there was a specific legislative permission that was granted. There is no such legislative permission here. Rather, we Council, have a situation in if which. I may, yes. Finish your thought. Finish. Well, we have a situation in which the record in front of this court is that there are substantial burdens. And this is not simply a parade of horribles. One of the significant burdens here is that for the first time ever, an employer has to track where its employees are across municipal boundaries. Sure, employers maintain records of employment. That's not in dispute. But there is no record that's maintained by a law firm about where within the city of, within the state of Minnesota, its workers are at a given point in time. And there's ample record evidence, and it was recognized by Judge Dickstein, that that imposed a substantial burden. And on the other hand, in this weighing procedure that's required by Nelson, in the other hand, you have the city that is indisputably failed to identify any reasonable basis for this minimal threshold. And yet it imposes upon every employer who might even meet that threshold, um, that there's a significant record-keeping burden. And if it fail, and, and it provides monetary sanctions, and provides that if employers fail to keep those records, that there's a presumption that will apply that there's a violation. This is an onerous statute, or an, excuse me, an onerous ordinance that imposes simply unprecedented obligations across the entire spectrum of employers. Council, I wanted to, um, if I may, Chief, um, just ask a quick question about your, your field preemption yes. argument. Um, one of the things that, that concerned me a little bit is when you look at um, the sick and, uh, uh, sick and paid leave statute, it does not appear that there is any uniformity uh, there going on. It does not appear um, that, for instance, there are any administrative rules that are attached to it. And typically, those are the kinds of things we see when we've found that the state has occupied a, a particular field. I mean, if you look, for instance, at the uh, Pollution Control Agency rules or workers' comp or um, any number of other areas like that. And that's missing here, as well as the commissioner uh, herself saying, this this is not a field that the state has, has occupied. And I'm wondering if you could address that, particularly this idea that there doesn't seem to be this sort of broad uniformity. I mean, you cite a lot of statutes where the term sick leave comes up, but they're just sort of random statutes that don't seem to deal with an employer's requirement to do anything. So that, that's the one concern I had with your argument. Thank you, Justice Hudson. And you're right that many of this court's decisions that find field preemption do involve statutory schemes that have implementation through rules. But that's never been a requirement. And in this case, as part of the field preemption standard, this court will need to struggle with or wrestle with the idea of what is the subject matter being regulated. Here, we contend that the appropriate view of the subject matter being regulated is the issue of employee-provided leave, a topic that the Minnesota legislature has expressly regulated uh, no less than nine times to provide comprehensive regulation. And significantly, the, the ordinance itself undercuts the argument that there should be a narrower construction of what the field at issue is because the ordinance is not limited to safe and sick time. The ordinance provides benefits relating to, for example, leave when there's a school closing. So it is, it's, it's an, although it is titled safe and sick time, it is a broader scope 
of employee leave, and that's what we think is appropriate. With respect to the this extent of regulation by the legislature, although it hasn't chosen to enact a single statute that regulates the um, issue of leave, it is re it, what it has chosen to do is to go back in a comprehensive way and regulate over and over and over again, no less than nine times. Significantly, the issue, the lack of nexus between what the, what the city's goals are and its extraterritorial burdens has direct application to implied preemption because under, section, under step three of Mangold, even where there's not, an, the, the legislature has not occupied an entire field, Mangold instructs that the court is to look at um, the, the balance between the, the um, the extent of regulation and the, tr the impact on a transient population and, and, and its relationship of that regulation to the municipal interest. So in, even in the implied preemption context, that lack of nexus weighs in favor of finding implied preemption. Because even if there were not complete regulation of the field, the lack of a a traditional municipal interest versus the burdens placed upon a transient population weighs in favor of finding that third factor met. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.